disappointment. Right in the middle in chapter number 19, you hear ringing out the bells of an exquisite declaration of hope that Job had. You know, Job is a dramatic unfolding. A dramatic unfolding of a man's life who demonstrates, listen now, that even when things are going bad in your life, God is worthy of praising. That your circumstances do not determine whether or not God is worthy of your glory and worship. Job demonstrates that in the deepest, darkest depths of woe and the night of the soul, he would praise God though he slayed me, Job said, yet will I trust him. The first two chapters, the first two chapters are the dilemma. The last two chapters are the deliverance. And the middle chapters are the debates bridging you from dilemma to deliverance. And that's where you find chapter number 19 falling in an ongoing dialogue between Job and his three friends. One of them was named Bildad. And Bildad in chapter 18 had articulated his opinion that Job, you're going through a hard time because you're a bad man. You're suffering because you're a sinner. In fact, he says, does Job at the beginning of chapter number 19, verse number 2, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? I mean, if, a, if you have friends like this, who needs enemies? I'm your friend, Job, and I'm here to tell you, I know you've lost everything and your children are dead and your wealth is gone and your house fell down and you're bankrupt now where you were rich just a little while ago and I'm your friend and I want to help you and I'm here to tell you all this has happened because you're a bad person. Thanks, friend. I appreciate that very much. How long are you going to torment me with your words, says Job? Because Bildad had concluded if you were good, you wouldn't suffer. And we all know no righteous person ever goes through trials, right? Job knew better than that. And I hope you do as well. But Job comes at the end of chapter 19 as he's being tormented by the words of Bildad and his other two friends. He comes at the end of chapter 19 to a glorious crescendoed confession of resurrection hope. Be my life never so dark. I have future resurrection hope. Consider the context of his resurrection hope in verses 23 and 24. It is framed with a Oh, exclamation three times that my words were written. Oh, that they were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And it's like Job stops at verse 23 and says, No, because paper will pass away and ink will eventually decay and crack. I want something more permanent written, verse 24, with an iron pen and lead that my words were engraved in the rock forever. Job is answering Bildad's accusation that you're suffering because you're a righteous person and he's giving testimony that he knows I'm not a 
perfect man, but I do trust God and I do love God and I do want to serve God and I am completely given to hope in God and I wish it were written down that this were my legacy. I am a person of true faith. I wish I could, he says, take a chisel and a hammer and carve these words of my testimony of hope in God in a rock and then melt down some lead and pour it in the rock. It would be a, a permanent inscription of my legacy of faith in God that will live on after I'm dead. It's a good question to ask yourself for a second, isn't it? What kind of story are you writing that you're going to leave behind long after you're dead? What's your obituary going to say? One Christian pastor one time said the ultimate goal of any Christian's life ought to be to live it in such a way that it lives long after he dies. Are you spending the majority of your days for frivolous matters that will last no longer than the setting of this evening's sun? Are you resting all of your reason for existence on the next high, the next pleasure, the next fading moment of earthly acclaim? Or are you living in such a way that your legacy after you're dead will live on. Revelation, you know, says, Happy are the dead who die in the Lord, yes, and their works do follow them, which means people who die in the Lord die with such a legacy and testimony that after they are in the ground, their works still speak. What will yours say, friend? What if you could read your own obituary? That happened one time by accident to a rather famous man. His name was Alfred Nobel. And one morning, Alfred Nobel, by the way, the inventor of dynamite, picked up the newspaper to read of his brother's obituary. His brother had passed away. Only his brother Ludwig was mistaken by the man who wrote the article, to be Alfred himself. And so the title of the obituary read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. Careless journalistic error made by this reporter, wherein Alfred himself was said to be dead. So imagine, you pick up the paper and you see your own name in the obituary section. And Alfred began to read, The Merchant of Death? Is that what they think about me? That, that my life's work is going to contribute to death and sorrow and suffering. And you know what Alfred did as he read his own obituary? He began to reflect. He began to recognize if this is the way that people understand the purpose of my life, then something's got to change. And he did. He spent the rest of his life working toward furthering the good and health and happiness and wholesomeness and peace of humanity, so much so that when he died, they named the most famous prize in the world after him, the Nobel Peace Prize. He gave his life to the betterment of humanity because he read his own obituary and he didn't like what he read. And I'll bet you, if you're honest with yourself today, 
you can identify some habits, some things that are contributing negatively to your reputation and testimony in life that you would say, Pastor, I wish that were not true about me and it needs to change. Well, guess what? There's still time. You're never too late to improve your own obituary for the glory of God. And so by God's grace, when the story of your life is written, let it be written similar to that testimony of Job, a man who trusted fully and completely in God. Let us live in such a way to say or do nothing in death that we will wish that we could unsay or undo. Let us live in such a way that we do in time during our life so that in the hour of death, said one pastor, the only thing left for you to do is die. Is die. If you knew that your death was approaching, would you say there's still so much I wish I could do, so much I wish I could say, so much I need to accomplish? Then wait no longer for the glory of God. Do what you know you need to do. So that when you die, there will only be left for you to do is to die. This is the context, isn't it, of Job's confession of resurrection hope. But let's move in verses 25 through 27 from the context in which it is expressed to the confession of his actual hope being expressed. Notice this great confession. Verse 25 starts with these three wonderful words that every Christian ought to be able to say, for I know, or maybe your translation says, as for me. In other words, what Job is saying is, I wish that things were not going as badly as they are. I I wish that my testimony and righteousness were recorded in the annals of history. I hope that history after I'm dead vindicates that I was not suffering because I was wicked, but because I trusted in the Lord. I pray my legacy is a good one, but no matter what, I know this. As for me, this is a good place for me to stop and remind you that sometimes in your life, you're going to need a place like this to land in your soul. Here is Job saying, all this bad stuff that is happening to me is out of my control. Let me give you a profound revelation that maybe you have never thought of. Wink, wink. Sometimes life's going to give you things that are out of your control. Do you know that? Sometimes life's going to bring things into your world that are completely out of your hands, that you have no control over. And when those things happen, not if, when those things happen, there needs to be something down in your soul that you can lay hold to. And that comes out of your heart with words like these. I know the most fundamental and important thing for being a Christian is not, listen now, how you feel. It's what you know. What do you know, Christian? Not how do you feel. 
Some days you'll feel pretty good. Maybe you feel pretty good today. Some days you won't feel so good. Maybe you don't feel good. Maybe life is going well for you. And you came in this morning upbeat, optimistic about the future. Maybe not. Maybe life is not looking so good. Maybe future prospects aren't looking so positive for you. But I'm not interested in how you feel, how life is going outside of you. I'm interested in what you know because what you know is what will sustain you when your life looks something like Job's life looked. There was two men I heard about in a, a story. that The story was called The Fisherman and His Friends. And, and these two men were assigned to, to stand watch out on a ship that was out on the sea at night. In a, and a storm came up on the sea and it rocked that ship. One man stood in a sheltered place that had a roof over him so he wouldn't get rained on and he wouldn't get sea sprayed on, but he didn't have any railing. The other man stood out by the railing. He didn't have a roof over his head, but what he did have was a rail to hang on to. Here come that storm, and it began to rock that ship to and fro, back and forth, up and down. And when the wind came, the man standing under the shelter went from high and dry to wet real quick because he was sucked out and thrown overboard. Yet the man who was standing out in the wind and out in the rain was not thrown overboard. Somebody came up to him and he said, how did that other man get thrown? He's bigger, he's stronger. I would expect he would be able to stay on and you would be the one thrown off. Why was he thrown off and you were able to stay on? He said, because I had something to hold on to. You know, you read Job 19, verse number 25, and you find that when those waves came and when that wind blew the ship that was his life in the midst of it all, you know why he could stand strong and firm in the faith? Because he had something to hang on to. What he says, he knows. I know. I know that I have a resurrected Redeemer. Notice verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives Interestingly enough, Job, not Genesis, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Job, who wrote Job ostensibly, lived around the time of Abraham, whereas Moses comes along later who wrote the book of Genesis. And what that means is this occurrence of the word redeemer is the first time this word goel in the Hebrew appears anywhere in the Bible. First time this concept appears. Later it will be articulated and explained by Moses what it means in the book of Exodus and the sacrifices that were to be offered were that when the animal's blood was spilled, it was indicative that the price was being paid for a sinner to be forgiven of sin by the blood of the lamb. The price being paid. We call that redemption. And this is the first time in the Bible that this concept historically appears. But Job does not say, I know that my redemption exists. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. The one who will one day, from Job's perspective, it would still be thousands of years in the future. But Job could look ahead in faith 
And he could say, even though things are crumbling to dust in my life, I know this one thing. I've got one who will pay the price for my soul with his own precious blood. And he is not dead, but he is alive. He's alive. I heard this week of this antidote called Crofab. Y'all know what Crofab is? Crofab is a rattlesnake anti-venom. Do you know what Crofab is made of? Can, the only thing that we know of, that I know of, that can cure a rattlesnake bite and the venom of rattlesnake poison. You know what animal's blood Crofab is made out of? You guessed it, the blood of a lamb. It's amazing that God puts these little gospel nuggets even in nature. Only the blood of the lamb could be the antivenom for the rattlesnake's bite. And only the blood of the redeemer and son of God is the antivenom of the bite of that old serpent that is your sin. And he is not dead, but he is alive. A resurrected redeemer fueled Job's heart in the darkest of days. And not just that, but we could say a returning redeemer. Go on in verse number 25. I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. One day the one who has redeemed me will stand on the earth that he ascended from long ago. The Bible says that it will happen this way. You ever seen a, I don't know if I could demonstrate it, a, a scroll be rolled up like this, big scroll of paper, and then you unroll it. The Bible says one day in the future, the sky itself is going to roll up like a scroll. As if God is going to pull the fabric and curtains of the sky back and open up the way that connects this universe to the realm of glory. The sky will roll back. And the Bible says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars of the heavens will go dark. It's like you're at a dramatic play and when the main character is going to walk on stage and everybody's attention needs to be drawn to him, they turn out all the lights so it will be on the last day. God will turn out the lights of the universe so that every eye can see the center and sum and substance of all existence as out from behind the curtain of eternity steps the Son of God on the clouds of heaven. And the Bible says he will descend. He will come down. And the trump of God in the Old Testament, which was used to summon God's people together either to fight or worship as they would blow the ram's horn so the people of God would come together in the Old Testament. And when the Son of God comes from heaven and is revealed in flaming fire, the trumpet of God will sound and all of God's people will be summoned together to meet Him in the air. And he will descend, says the New Testament. And his feet will stand once again on the ground where 2,000 years ago he was taken up on a cloud. You know what the Bible calls this for the Christian? The blessed hope. The blessed hope. It's Job's blessed hope that I know in the end because this is true. Whatever my life looks like now, because this is true, 
everything is okay for me in the end. He is a returning redeemer. He is a resurrected redeemer. Not just that, though, a resurrecting redeemer. Go on in verse number 26 as we hasten. And not only is my redeemer alive and one day he's going to return to the earth, but when that happens, something else is going to happen. Job says, I know one day I'm going to die. It's a good thing to come face to face with. We don't like to think about it, but it's a reality we cannot escape. Should the Lord tarry long enough, one day what was true of Job will be true of you and me. Verse 26, after my skin has been thus destroyed. That's a euphemistic way of saying I'm going to die. I'm going to go in the grave and I'm going to decay like all of humanity. And, and as I'm put in the ground, my body will break down. My skin, as it were, says Job, will be destroyed. You know, sometimes you hear, you go to funerals and, uh, y'all, I try so hard not to have a theologically critical ear when I'm at funerals. I'm not there to criticize the minister, but sometimes I'm just like, that's not true. That's, that's unbiblical. Sometimes you'll hear at funerals things like, well, grandma or grandpa was a saint of God, which could be true enough. Thank God for that. And, and they're in heaven now, and thank God for that. And now they're just dancing down the streets of glory. So they ain't dancing anywhere. Because her feet and her legs that she would be dancing on are in the ground, not in the presence of the Redeemer. No, whenever a person dies now between their death and the return of Jesus Christ, we call that in theological terms the intermediate state, the time when your body is separated from your soul. Your body goes into the ground. Your soul goes into the presence of God. And that body that we leave behind that Paul calls something like a tent or a tabernacle is put off, and it sees corruption, doesn't it? And it breaks down, and it dissolves, and it is destroyed, and it goes back to the dust of the earth from whence it was made. But listen at verse number 26. Even after that happens, there's coming in a day future, yet not in my spirit. We're not talking about the intermediate state here when the spirit or soul returns back to the presence of God and the body goes in the ground. Job says, in my what? Flesh. I shall see God. My body might go in the ground, but that body one day, just like Jesus' did, is coming up out of the ground. And in that flesh, now reunited with the soul, when Jesus returns from heaven, will see God. I'm going to see him. I'm not talking about some dream, some mystical vision. I'm going to have some impression in my mind or in my heart of, of what God might be like. No, these eyes will see him. These hands will touch him just as disciples did when he appeared to them in the upper room and they handled him and they touched him and they saw him. So we will see the king there in the new earth and new heavens, the king there in all of his beauty. And when we see him, we will be made like him for we'll see him as he is. He is a resurrecting redeemer who gives life to all who know him in his return in my flesh. We or I shall see God. And consider this. 
a remarkable thought. In his return, he will be a recognizable redeemer. You're going to see your redeemer and you're going to know that's him. Verse 27. This one says, Job, whom I shall see for myself. That's emphatic. Nobody's going to see him for me. I will stand in front of him. I will see him. And my eyes shall behold and not another. What is, what is the proper reflexive response when this truth really, I mean really hits you in your soul? It gets out of your head and it gets into your heart. The problem with too many Christians is the truth of the gospel just stops in their head and it never gets in their heart and they sit so coldly and they approach the things of God so deadly and they can't be stirred to love or serve God. Let me tell you why. Because the truth of the gospel is stuck in your head and it's not gotten in your heart. It's in Job's head. But this last expression in verse number 27 shows you it's penetrated into his heart. My heart, the ESV says, faints within me. What he's literally saying is, I am overwhelmed by this. I am overwhelmed that one day me, puny, sinful, wicked, undeserving, hell-deserving me, will see God as I look into the face of the beautiful, darling Son of the Most High who loved me and gave himself for me. My heart faints. My heart faints within me. It overwhelms him. He is like Mary, who many years hence... Mary, who in the garden, I read this story to the, to the kids last night, and, and my daughter said, how did Mary not recognize that it was him? Well, I think she turned around, and she was up in the tomb looking for him and didn't find him, and she turns around, she hears Jesus' voice. And, and, and John 20 says she, she heard Jesus, but she, and she saw him, but she didn't recognize it was him. How was that? He was probably standing in the cave, the doorway cave, and the sun was beaming down behind him, and so she saw the silhouette, and she thought, well, that must be the gardener. And then he said, Mary. And she said, that ain't the gardener. That is my Savior who is alive. And she tried to grab a hold. And Jesus said, you can't hold on to me. I'm going back to the Father because a, an ascended Jesus in heaven is even better than an earthly Jesus on earth. Don't hold on to me. But Mary said, I just got to hold on to you because joy had gripped her heart because her King and Savior was alive. And she recognized him. And Job says, one day I will recognize him. And if you know him, one day you will see him and you will recognize him. You won't need any introduction. You don't need Peter to say, welcome to heaven. This is Jesus. Oh, no. You'll know he's the one when you see him. When you're resurrected and stand before him. However, I must remark as we close today, standing before the Lord... For some, it's good news. If, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's good news. It's something you look forward to. It's the blessed hope, as the New Testament calls us. It's something you pray along with the Apostle John. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. I want to see him. I look forward to that day. However, it's not everybody. It's not everybody here this morning who can confidently express they're ready to stand before the Lord. It's good news for those who know him. It's not so much. For those who don't, because the day of salvation and grace at the return of Christ for some is tragically for many more going to be the day of judgment. Judgment for others.
This is the caution of Job's resurrection hope. Verses 28 and 29. Job turns to his friends who had really been slandering him in some of the most hurtful ways. And he says, if you say how we will pursue him. In other words, they think, I'm doing God's work. We're going to get him, God. You're punishing him and we're going to add insult to injury with our words. We're going to pursue him. God, aren't you proud of us for joining Lot with you? The root of the matter is found in him. A little bit of a, a, little bit of a controversy regarding if this is a positive or negative statement. In other words, is Job saying the root of the matter is found in me? In other words, my righteousness, my goodness, I'm, I'm not being punished for something bad I've done because the root of goodness is in me? I don't think so. I think what he is doing is he is imposing upon his opponents what they were saying about him. The root of the matter, that is, the deservingness of his suffering. The sin, the wickedness that they were accusing him of. The root of the matter, the reason for your suffering, that is, we found it. The root of the matter, why you're being punished by God is you're, you're a bad person, so we're going to pursue him. But Job says in verse number 29, essentially... Those who live by the sword of judgment will die by the sword of judgment. Be afraid of the sword. You're comfortable wielding the sword of judgment against me, but you need to be conscious of something else. What about the day when you face the sword of judgment wielded against you? See how he turns it in their own thinking for the wrath that you're expressing brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know that there is a judgment. I don't want to be a negative Nancy here on this joyous Easter day. But I'm not a faithful man of God if I sit up here and lie to you and tell you there's never a judgment day because there is. You and I have to stand before the Lord one day. There is a judgment. And what Job says in verse number 29 really is crystallized and distilled so beautifully and summarily in the words of our Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Judge not that you be not judged. And what he means is not that you can, you can never make a moral pronunciation upon something. We must call right, right, and wrong, wrong. Sometimes people use that verse as an excuse. If you say, that is wrong, you shouldn't do that. They'll say, don't judge me, judge not, Christian. That's not what Jesus means when he says that. The Bible commands that we distinguish between right and wrong. But what Jesus means when he says, judge not, that you be not judged, Read the rest of the passage. For what measure you use to judge others, it will be measured against you. What he's saying is, listen now, never hold someone else to a moral standard you're not willing to hold yourself to. Don't be a do as I say, not as I do a person. Say, you're wrong for doing that, and you, you know you're doing the same thing. Judge not in that way, or you will be judged. You know, that's exactly what Job's friends were doing to him. You're being punished by God because you're a wicked sinner. They themselves were the ones under the actual judgment of God and they were completely blind to it. Jesus would remind them, and me and you judge not in this way, lest you be not judged. And who better than Jesus to tell us what the danger of judgment entails? Who better than Jesus, the judge of the world, 
who himself was judged unjustly in a human court. Who better than Jesus to teach us about the relationship between judgment and grace? For he, Jesus, who is truly the judge of all men, was himself subjected to judgment from men. Think about it. The innocent one, having been found guilty, though innocent, he who hung the earth suspended on nothing, was himself hung suspended between heaven and earth on a cross of wood. So that you and I, so that you and I, could one day face the judgment sword of God unafraid. For since that sword of God's judgment fell on the darling redeemer of mankind, you and I need not fear it ourselves. But thank God he, he who was dead is alive and has the keys of death and hell. Our Redeemer lives and on the last day He shall return to stand upon the earth to judge the living and the dead. So friend, I leave you with this. When you look face to face that day on the Redeemer of mankind in the resurrection of the just and unjust, you shall know Him as judge or you shall know Him as Redeemer. You need not be judged if you can say, I know my Redeemer lives. Do you know it today? Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. For if it's only a hope for this life, Paul reminds us that we are of all men most miserable. It's not just a hope for this life, but it's a hope of everlasting, never-ending life, of eternal life. May this hope,